Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. And he's our special guest, actor Kenneth Cranham. Lights flicker from the opposite loft. In this room, the heat pipes just cough. The country music station plays soft, but there's nothing, really nothing, to turn off. Just Louise and her lover so entwined, and these visions of Joanna that conquer my mind. (laughs) Ken, that was fantastic. Uh, we asked you to choose uh, some lines from any Dylan song, and you chose that from Visions of Johanna. Why? The best song on the best album. Oh, and the be- best delivered. <laughs> yeah. I never, you know, really roll over Bob. Uh, why did you choose that in particular? Well, um, I, I, I see Blonde on Blonde as a sort of culmination album. I mean, I'd, I'd been with him. What happened is I was at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art and certain things went on in the corridors. And this guy said to me, you've got to go and see this guy, Bob Dylan, at the Royal Festival Hall. He smokes joints all the time. <gasps> I thought, well, I'd better go. And I bought four tickets for a pound. <laughs> and he played in the afternoon. And I couldn't find four people to go. Three of us went my girlfriend Elaine, and Klaus, who was a Dutch guy who was staying with me because I'd stayed with him on tour. And he came along. We had an empty seat. And nobody knew who this was. And one after the other, he did all these songs. And so you heard for the first time in your life, Don't Think Twice, It's All Right, Mr. Tambourine Man, which wasn't, wasn't on an album for quite some time, hard rain, and he was incredibly funny. He was Chaplin-esque, and he charmed the entire Royal Festival Hall. I'd never seen anyone do that. I'd never seen anyone do it since. The only other person I've seen comfortable there was Tammy Wynette, because I thought it must have been a bit like some of the dates she had played on one of her endless tours in in the American Midwest, the Royal Festival Hall. But years later... My girlfriend was his girlfriend at the time, and she was backstage with him. And she told me that he'd never played the afternoon before. This was a complete new one for him. And so what he had to do was draw the curtains, drink lots of red wine, smoke lots of cigarettes, and pretend he was in a folk club in the evening. And so he treated the Royal Festival Hall as if it were a folk club. Mm. And he told jokes. He was charming. He was physically charming. The way that he moved was endearing. Not like a few years later. (laughs) And uh, that was it. I mean, I'd never seen any one person captivate with something which was entirely theirs before. He'd written all the songs, every one of them. And in the program, it said all songs by Bob Dylan. And when you heard something for the first time, that hard rain, I mean, where I live now, near Pentonville Prison, whenever I go past it, either on the way to the tube or back from the tube, lines of hard rain come to me. It's still with me, the, the, the things that he felt. 
the executioner's face is always well hidden. Those things they come rolling along. I don't I don't play the song Hard Rain endlessly, and I, I don't enjoy other people's versions of it or anything. But it it really sort of entered into me. And she was there, this girlfriend backstage, and she was one of those very kind women, the very patient. And I can Im- imagine why he was drawn to her. But he was obviously over here doing his best to make his mark. And and he was appearing on television shows, singing snatches of this and snatches of that. And I became the Bob Dylan sort of listening post. I had... My first album was Free Willing, which is an amazing album. Mm. My next album was Times Are Changing. And they're staggering albums, both of them. And I became completely evangelical. And um, people would travel to my house. I live still with my mum and dad, even though I was at drama school. And I would I would play the entire album of Free Willing, followed by the times they were changing. And once I even had um, the Salvation Army come round. And I said, well, I'll read this, but I want you to listen to this. And I, and I took them into my house and played them with God on our side. <laughs> How did they react to that? <laughs> well, I think this was a new one for them. <laughs> well, also with God on our side would be, you know, that's not just you're playing them some music, but you're criticizing no, the whole thoughts. But, but I, th- I thought that song, it astonished me. I, I, I never sort of tired of trying to think about what he was saying in it. Unfortunately, it's not aged either, has it really? Hasn't it? Well, I don't. I think the sentiment in it. I mean, I remember during the, the Bush Blair. You mean years, it's aged well? You mean it's still? I flies. guess I do mean that. I mean, yeah. it hasn't dated, is what I mean. Oh, no, it hasn't I mean, dated. It, it's, it's yeah, but you know, I often looked at Bush and Blair and thought, you know, you don't count the dead when God's on your side. That's that's your your motivation and your stick here. Yeah, you know? yeah, and I suppose that's the same as Dostoevsky saying, you know. One person is murder, millions is you know all those things. Mm, those yeah. things, I suppose. Mm. I suppose it's it, it's been said before. But you see, there's um, a folk song called "Some Old Salty," which Waters and Carthy do, and um, this rather eccentric old guy used to play them records. And one of the lines is it is Jelly Roll and Jerry Lee, <laughs> how he used to rock me, some old salty. And um, thinking back, I realised that the. There were all these pockets of, of, of music in London. Mm. I first heard Jerry Lee Lewis in Hearn Hill. I first heard Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry in Brixton Hill. And it, 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 there were all these places that you went to where certain people had certain records mm. and, and, mm. went and would say, listen to this. And it, it had the feeling of a sort of a, almost the French resistance or something, a little sort of pirate sort of radio stations. I mean, Elvis w- mm. was already on Family Favourites. You could hear Elvis right. uh, on regular radio, but all these other things you couldn't. Because I was going to ask you if you felt um, a sort of community of, of, of music, music fans, even within the acting community, within within RADA, let's say, when you were there, but you're saying London itself had these little pockets, and we often hear these, these stories of people saying, the only way to hear Chuck Berry was if you went to this guy's house. He had the Chuck Berry record, and, and I too. guess you're saying, you're the guy, right? Oh, yeah, well, I... I, I I became, I became the Bob Dylan guy. Yeah, I was the one that had the Bob Dylan records, and and the Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley records had terrible sort of covers. You know, they weren't very well produced. Mm. You know, they, they weren't commercially. They they were oddities. And and the great thing that happened to me 
was that I stopped playing rugby. I was getting injured every weekend. And, I, and then I got this job in Fisher's Music Salon in Streatham Hill. And it was Friday night and all day Saturday in Streatham Hill, which had a dual carriageway and a wimpy bar, a magical place. And <laughs> every Friday night and Saturday, I would hear the, the new American releases. And it, and it was mm. a revelation to me. And, mm. and odd, I do odd things, like I go to Finsbury Park for the first time in my life and see Dwayne Eddy. You know, he didn't have much of a show. He just had a twangy guitar. Mm -hmm. And on the same bill, Frank Ifield, <laughs> a yodeler, yeah. and Des O'Connor, a comic. I mean, all, all on my own, these things. Mm. And But then things started to happen. Then you started to see something which, which was really... I saw the Oh Boy stage show, yeah. which was actually composed of English Elvis impersonators. Mm -hmm. And uh, the best one was Billy Fury. The next best one, oddly enough, was Cliff Richard and mm. Vince Eager and so on and that lot. And it, and it started to get very exciting. Mm. My, my mother was quite young and she was my jiving partner. And so she loved sort of coming to see these things with me, these films, Elvis films. And she would say things like, oh, he's got nice teeth and things like that. But Bob Dylan, seeing him, it was... Um, there was an inner working went on. There was something that clicked mentally about him. And you started to really sort of wonder and long to hear what he had to say next. Mm. And, and, the, and, the, and the first succession of albums really advanced like that and, and told you more and gave you more. And he influenced the Beatles. He influenced all the, all mm. the things around him. Bill Wyman walked, worked down the road in Streatham Hill from me and he gave Bobby, who was the girl who worked there all week, these tickets to see his group for a shilling reduced. And I went there with my girlfriend, Elaine, and Mick Jagger, who I'd never seen before, was, was leaning up against the door frame of the club with a Coke bottle between his lips talking to these black girls. And I thought, oh, I don't like the look of him. And I persuaded Elaine to walk around the block until he'd gone. And then, then we went down into the club, and they were all sitting in a row on chairs trying to sound like black bluesmen yeah. and had a 50% mm. black audience. It was very impressive. Mm -hmm. And I'd never heard Slim Harpo. I'd never heard Jimmy Reed. I'd, never, I'd heard Josh White. I'd heard Big Bill Brunsey. Mm. The wildest thing I'd ever heard was sort of Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. So there were all these things, all these things appearing, popping up. And I don't think I knew anything about um, Woody Guthrie. So all the things that were coming through to me from Dylan were a complete revelation to mm. me. And he went on revealing things to me, even when... I mean, he got fantastically wayward, but not like those late albums he made in his garage of those... Um, with the Travelling Wilburys, you mean? No, no, no you mean the, the Wilburys. You the, mean the, Good the, As I Made To You and oh, Well yeah. Gone Wrong? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I, and so I've now got an album of the of the Mississippi Shakes and all those things, mm. all from him. I mean, he, he really was into things, yeah. and he really had that ability to, to click doing something which was biblical and jazz jive hip at the same time, you know. Abe, give me a son. Abe said, you must be putting me on, all that. You know, that really, he really managed that thing of, of being biblical and, and, and of now. And he said, you know, of late, that Buddy Holly was his big thing, that he mm. went to see Buddy Holly mm. and that Buddy Holly looked at him. Mm. Mm. Now, I've, I've had a ballad sung to me by Tina Turner. I've had, I've had a ballad sung to me by Lena Horne. When they look out front and 
my face is the sort of face they want. Somebody totally enthralled, listening, hanging on to every bit of it. Yeah. Rattlesnake Annie sought me out to thank me. For, it was very under-attended, one of her concerts, and I'd made it bearable for her. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Dylan, I've never seen anybody command an audience the way he did at the Royal Festival mm. Hall, an awkward building. Mm. And if you listen to him on that track, which came out much later on the double album, when he does Tomorrow is a Long Time, mm. you can hear how the audience is really... Oh, they're absolutely in hushed awe, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. that's what it was like. Yeah. You, you were talking about um, things biblical, and mm -hmm. uh, you said uh, you were mentioning to us before we came into the studio about how uh, it was your theory that Bob made Jews hip. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that was partly because my great friend who I introduced to Bob Dylan, who, who then took it way beyond me, Roger Lloyd Pack, he and his wife were both Jewish, and... Um, I think that, that Dylan and Leonard Cohen and Lenny Bruce made it pretty hip to be Jewish. I, I can't think of anyone else that did that. Do you? Well, you know, I was always grateful to Woody Allen, quite yeah, frankly, yeah. as a short guy with glasses. Yeah, I have to say that, um, like Bob Dylan, I've loved living in Woody Allen's span. I've had mm. such pleasure from his work mm. and, and, and for a long, long time, you know. Yeah, me too. You yeah. know, when I saw Annie Hall, I thought, huh, there's this guy and he's mm. got Diane Keaton. And, mm. you know, he could be my older brother. So, um, but, but we're, we're, I thought Woody Allen, in a way, could be my older brother, but not Bob Dylan, who's around the right age to be my older brother, just because I, I couldn't imagine somebody that hip um, being in my sphere. I mean, have you ever met him or come close to meeting him? No, Can I never have. But, you know, I, I've really sort of... Um Followed him closely and shared girlfriends and things, but I haven't got. I haven't got <laughs> That's near good enough. There's quite a few stories of of people coming home and he's sitting there. I mean, he he, yeah. he did actually put himself out there. He did sort of um, appear in Crouch End a lot and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. so you don't think that's apocryphal? You think the Dave story is, is true? I don't know. The Dave Stewart story. <laughs> yes, I think it probably is. I have to you? ask you about your um, mutual ex-girlfriend. Did she tell you anything else that you'd like to share with us about Bob? Well, well, Back then? This well, was a long no, time no, ago. Well, she was very wary of Grossman. She thought he mm. was a, a, a nasty piece of work, mm. which I, I think was possibly so. And I, I didn't realize Grossman was in that early. You know. Yeah. Yeah, no, he snapped him up mm. pretty much from the beginning. And I didn't realize until I read this book about Woodstock by Barney Hoskins a couple mm. of years ago, mm. just how soon Bob had gone out to Woodstock, how soon Grossman, Grossman bought a place there in yeah. 63, or he was there certainly by 63. And I think Bob started going up immediately, sort of mm. for the weekend. And, yeah. yeah. Well, he would have done, wouldn't he? I mean, th because that really is part of him, is that desire to to get back to some sort of simplicity and meaning in it. Yeah. Obviously, he had, a, he had a real run-in with that sort of the Andy Warhol stuff like that. I mean, when I went to New York in 68, I had a girlfriend in New York who adored Dylan, and she was actually there when when um, Pete Seeger tried to sort of cut the cables and all yeah, of that. Really. She was really upset by the whole thing, She, she you know, because she wanted to follow him where, wherever he went or whatever mm. choices he made. And that that had really upset her, and she liked to play blonde on blonde with the arm off. So it played and went back to the beginning and mm. played again. She used mm. to that's what that's what she liked playing. So you followed him all the way. 
you don't just stick to a particular Dylan. No, there's a, there's a particular patch which is from freewheeling to blonde on blonde, which is really and but they're not the things I've found out since. Like I didn't realise that for blonde on blonde, he was he was using Nashville musicians, mm-hmm. yeah, which is extraordinary because I've always I've always thought of blonde on blonde as the ultimate New York yeah, fire escape album. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's, partly it's got beautiful that. pictures. He was at his most beautiful then, wasn't mm. he? Mm. No, it's got that. Um, that New York hipness to it, but yeah, uh, yeah. yeah it's natural. I think sometimes through. we know too much now. Yeah. You know, because when I first heard Blonde on Blonde, I had no idea that it was recorded in Nashville. That, and that, that, Why would you? What a historic thing that was yeah. Yeah. for the hip yeah. New York Jewish yeah. guy yeah. to go down to Nashville with quite a few other hip New York Jewish guys. Um, well, it makes John yeah. Wesley Harding seem like less of a jump, doesn't it, I suppose? Yes, well, the, you but know? you can see all the sort of hints of things all the way along. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you, we, you were talking about Wood Records mm, yeah. um, the, in Cross Street, which was a great sort of North London haven, and, and he would put all the new releases up on the wall, and there's all people I met then who were still my friends in mm. that. <laughs> this is Lee. Uh, Lee, and, Lee, Lee, Wood, Lee. Wood music, yeah. yeah. And um, David Hare made this great pronouncement saying, let's face it, oh, yeah. Keats is better than Dylan." And my response to that, Lee, in large letters, put it up on the wall in the shop, which was, yeah, but Keats didn't have Al Cooper on keyboards, did he? (laughs) (laughs) Which I thought covered up what I felt about the whole thing. You know, don't be be silly. You know, it's it's a different thing. It's a ludicrous comparison. You're right. You're right. When I first met Lee, he said, I'm pretty sure he said, this was 20 years ago, have you met Ken Cranham? This is what he said. You know, he was was telling that story even then. You've, um, can I just uh, do a really jarring segue? But I know that you've worked with uh, Sam Shepard. That you, uh, yes, you know, and uh, and so as Dylan. So that, mm. and I was wondering at at the time, did you because it was before he Sam Shepard co-wrote with Dylan? Did you ever discuss Dylan when you worked? I with didn't. Him? But let me let me tell you, Sam Shepard, I think was was sort of uh, escaped New York and all of it for a time mm. and lived with a little woman in North London who played the cello. And this was an early play of his called Geography of a Horse Dreamer. Mm. And it was about somebody who dreamt the winners of horse races. And me and Bob Hoskins played the gangsters and Stephen Ray played the guy chained to the bed. And my opening line was, Silky Sullivan was a flight-by-night C.V. Whitney nag out of Santa Anita... One by a couple of stakes back in 62, retired to stud shortly thereafter. Took me a whole evening to learn that line. (laughs) And uh, I can't even remember it now. But um, (laughs) what he did on the first day of rehearsal is he came in with a record player under his arm, Sam Shepard, and played me, Bob and Stephen a track each. Mm-hmm. Now, that to me is just is, is so brilliant because I always remember somebody's favourite song. I always, I'm always interested to hear. So are you saying it was your character's favourite song? Is that no, what he played? No, he said, this is your character. And what he played me was, was Careless Love by Sidney Bechet. And I thought, wow, was, was he, why? And I thought, of course, this, this guy brilliant. is lost in, lost in a dream, you know. Filet mignon, three times a day, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> What a great way to direct! Oh, well, well, you know, yeah, and it's, yeah. it's fantastic. Now that that is something, you know, I've I've never come across that before or since. And and I read 
before Roger died, Roger was had a long illness, pancreatic cancer. I actually gave him my copy of Rolling Thunder Review, right? Which is Sam's Shepherd, book. Yeah. Yeah. Never got it back, but um, <laughs> it, but but he he adored Dylan. I mean, he really sort of did. And Sam Sam wasn't sort of very enthusiastic about things in general. I don't mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I started reading this on the train on the way in today. Just that that, that long the book. Rolling Thunder yeah. book. Yeah, yeah. And, and what about some other people that you've known and worked with? For instance, I don't imagine Joe Wharton was really a, a, a no, no. Guy. Joe, Joe. What had, what had happened is, you know, there was something that went on in this country which was a surfboard that everybody was riding together, which was the sixties. And um, Joe had been wooed by Paul McCartney to write a film script for the mm-hmm. Beatles. He'd enter, he ent- entered into that world, and and. He was played Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields, and he and he liked Penny Lane, but didn't like Strawberry Fields. He liked When I'm 64. You know, they're quite sort of they're quite straightforward. The ones mm. that he liked, mm. but he Joe did buy Sunshine Superman Donovan. Uh-huh. But I never I never heard his view on Bob Dylan. You 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 so often people say they they can't bear his delivery. They can't. Bear oh, I know his... that's the easy excuse. Yeah, that's yeah, plenty yeah. Of people say. And people yeah. dismiss him totally for that. But um, <clears throat> I think he's a wonderful singer. I really oh, do. Yeah, <laughs> no, in, 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 the yeah, club. in everything that singing can yeah. possibly be, he does it really well. Yeah. Mm. And and speaking of language, uh, well, you've worked with Harold Pinter a lot as well. There, mm. There's probably no Dylan crossover there, is there? No, there's not. But um, for me, sexy Jews. Well, no, yeah. Well, it, just as Tom Jones said that Elvis loved being Elvis, Pinter loved being Pinter, mm. and he really cut a dash. You know, he really he dressed like. When Elvis had, after the success of the comeback, he really started to wear some fantastic clothes. Yeah. And that's that's what Pinter was doing. In a way, that's what Pinter and Dylan have that in common. Because when, I don't know what Dylan was wearing, you know, in 65. I think, was he wearing his black leather jacket? I don't know, but when it, but because he always looked well, I think I think great. Ken's talking about when he saw him. I think it sounds more like sort of sixty four. So it might have been yeah, before that. Right. Oh, that yeah. was yeah. the fu- that was yeah. that was the, the you know that was and, and and let's face it, the times are changing. Cover is the most brilliant version of um, Woody Guthrie, isn't mm. it? It really oh, is. Yeah. It's, oh, yeah. it's Woody Guthrie to a, a ravaged team. face. Yeah, 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 and and, and you know because the. The first album, the face on that is rather odd. Mm. It's rather puffy guy with a. He yeah. looks like he's about twelve years old. Oh, you can see yeah. the acne. Yeah. He's yeah. I mean, you yeah. said Ken that you've um, you feel that he, your life has kind of lived in parallel to Dylan, and he's punctuated much of uh, much of your life. Mm. How do you feel about him now? I mean, how do you do? You, do you turn to his music that he's say the music that he's re- he's released in the last couple of years at all? Yes, I mean, and I, it's wonderful that Adele made that song into a huge hit. Mm. It's the most wonderful love song. Yeah. And I've been thinking today how much I loved If You See Her, Say Hello. She might be in Tangiers. Mm. She left here last early spring. It's living there, I hear. I mean, I, I, he really knows how to sort of hit the pain and logging. It started with Girl of the North Country yeah. and, and on it went from there. There's, there's many of songs like that. They're beautiful, beautiful, beautiful love songs he wrote. And also anti-love songs, though, I mean, yeah. beautiful yeah, love. Yeah. You know, I'm, mm. I'm sick of yeah, love. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. yeah. He covers it all, doesn't he? How does it feel and all of that, yeah. But, yeah. The, but those two love songs, Love Minus Zero and those, those yeah. two on that album, My Love, She Speaks Like Silence Without Ideas or Violence. Mm. Doesn't have to say she's faithful. 
yet she's true like ice, like fire. I know, a real Bob Dylan girl. That's... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, I do feel that once you kind of, once you latch on to Dylan's work and once you feel his work is inside you and you, you live in that context, you are, to quote one of his album titles, together through life. Yes. You know, and, and his, his work is there all the time and it's there for you and, you know, you can grow older, a little bit wiser, a little bit more jaded, a little bit whatever... You can come back and these songs are still there and they'll, they'll project a different version of you back mm. when you look at them. And look at those songs that never, he never put on an album, like mm. Blind Penis McTell. <laughs> <laughs> you see, because this is a podcast, we can't say Willie. Yeah. That's the thing. Our producer was very strict about <laughs> yeah. that. He said, no, Willie. Thank you, Ken. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to uh, the 64, I think it was, or so around that time, a Carnegie Hall concert, which came out as a, mm. as a bootleg, and he sings, uh, If You Gotta Go, Go Now. And yeah. uh, you get the feeling most people don't know the song. And the thing that I loved about it was that not only is it hilarious, like he brings the house down, yeah. it's also really serious. I mean, that's part of his philosophy mm. of sex and love and relationships. I don't mess around. It'll be yeah. too dark for you to find the door. Yeah. It has two edges to it, yeah. doesn't it? I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I, I yeah, yeah, to, the, the, to be the, serious and funny at the same time, like yeah. Pinter, like yeah, Orton, yeah. is, is a, uh, such an art. Well, I, I did this... Um, with the Royal Court, I did this tour of the Iron Curtain countries, and I was so shocked because we we played Prague when it was occupied by the Russian troops, and then we played Lublin and Warsaw in, in Poland, and it was so shocking, the whole thing, to, to, to witness the Soviets and what they did to countries, that when I came back, the two people didn't have albums over there, and the, and the two albums that I sent to the people I've been staying with were... Nashville Skyline and Abbey Road, mm-hmm. and and when I listen to Lay Lady Lay, and and oddly enough, you don't hear this one much because by the Beatles, I thought, oh, I'm so glad to be home, <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> and and sent them sent them these mm-hmm. albums. But that on on Nashville Skyline, that that song, I, I threw it all away. Oh. I wish Elvis had recorded that. Mm. He would have he would have yeah. really done that. He really would. He a lyric like that, he could really. You know, he, it's a shame that he'd never made a Dylan album. Well, really. particularly when, when when you hit the mid-70s and, and you do have the sense of a man who did throw so much away, whether he knew it or not, <laughs> yeah. to have been singing that mm. song would have just been absolutely perfect. I have, a, I have a list in my head of songs that Elvis should have covered, and that's absolutely on it. That's yeah. absolutely on yeah. it. Yeah. Yes, I know. Have you heard him do I Shall Be Released? That's pretty, pretty good. Yes, yeah, my wife is rather annoyed by that because she says he's singing harmony, he's not singing the song. <laughs> <laughs> That's on the on Rogers anyway. But I think yeah. Nashville Skyline is it's weirdly in a way underrated by a lot of Dylan fans. Yeah, because and I don't know why. Because mm. to me, I probably listen to the album actually more than any other album, just because mm. it's so it's easy to listen to. It's, it's sweet. It's, it's, it's sweet. It's sweet, but it's also deeply profound. Those love songs are. Yeah, uh, love is all there is. It makes the world go round. I I, I believe yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> Once yeah. I had mountains no, in the palm too. of my hand, you know. Yeah, that they're, they're, not, through every yeah day. they're not throwaway lines, but no, means, are they? No. There's a purity to Nashville Skyline, which makes it a, a perfect entry point. I mean, Kerry and I both, mm. it was our It was actually, we, 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 we decided to do this podcast. We thought well, we should, we d- don't even know each other that well, but we know a lot about what the other person thinks about Dylan. Mm. Yeah. And I said, what was your yeah. entry point? Now, I'm, I'm old enough to have listened to Dylan when he came out, uh, just about, you know, when I was like 12 or 13. Mm. But I did hear him, but he scared me too much until Nashville Skyline came out. So that was my entry 
entry point. I thought, oh, he seemed scary before, but he's not scary now. So I listened to him. And Luke, who's 20 years younger than me. Yeah, I got, I got into Nashville Skyline pre-drama school in, in 1990. You know, I wasn't born when it came out. Um, but that doesn't matter, does it? Because ultimately here we are and we're, we're talking about what we find in these songs. And... You know, we've we, I've talked to lots of people about Dylan for this podcast, and also just in my mm. you know <laughs> on my own time. Mm. And some of them, like you, they say, you know, I'm, I'm there with him every step of the way. You came in at album two, and you've been there ever since. Some people, you know, we spoke to someone the other day who's who's 14. Um, I speak to people in their 20s. You know, they were born after time out of mind, and yet yeah. the work is still there. Yeah, uh, and I think. I think I'm right in saying that his his work is of a caliber that's going to be around for a long, long time. I think so. And, and and every now and then, there's you know, not that you give up on him, but there's suddenly I, I, that song most of the time. I, oh. I, I think it's heartbreaking. Yeah, just that the understatement of most of the time. And all like all really, well, all really great songs about heartbreak. It, it, it's about death as well. You know, it's about missing somebody who's gone. Yeah, um, and I can cope most of the time, you know, and that's yes. I think yes, very simple and very profound. Well, one of one of my very best friends, and she played Titania in the youth theatre when I played Bottom, mm. and she's been an Anglican nun for fifty years, and she's she's stayed with Dylan all the way along. Yeah, you know, because Dylan has, has has given her substance, you know, because Dylan had that extraordinary period where I love that song, I believe in you, mm. which can be about a woman it can be about all you can really it's got such a size to it as a song mm. so so she's managed to sort of she's been a bit upset by some of the biographies <laughs> <laughs> well i must thank you actually uh, while we got the, the mics on for introducing me to that phoebe snow version of uh, it's amazing well, I believe isn't it? you. it's phenomenal yeah i played it to my brother and he, he keeps texting me he says i can't I can't stop listening to this song you know um, it, yeah, there's always something new to hear. And it just this, gets this, I think it's, it shows you the power of the songs, the cover versions, because you hear Dylan's version and you think, well, I, it's tough, but I think I'm beginning to get it. And then you hear somebody else and it's a completely different take. Yeah. It shows yeah. you how great they are, how that they really are poetry. We had uh, David Hepworth come on and say that uh, Dylan did not deserve the Nobel Prize, that it was a joke. He said he's a brilliant lyricist, a brilliant songwriter, but not a poet. Where do you uh, stand? Why do you on? say that? Uh, that you know, there's no arguing with David, so we just let him say it. But we, <laughs> what does he do? Uh, he 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 started Q Magazine and uh, the What's Word, that? the Word. These these they're they're terrific music magazines. But I've, he I've, presented Live Aid. I've he heard this fronted old Grey Whistle Test. He's been around. I've heard this point of view a couple of times. I mean, I think some people think that song lyrics are not poetry. And absolutely, definitely, you know. But, but, well, I think absolutely. I mean, I, th I think you can recite every grain of sand or Black Diamond Bay, mm. and without the music, and nobody would know it's a song. Um, mm. You know. But I think, by the same token, there are Dylan songs which, you know, are hard if you pull the tune out. But he's gifted at both, and I think I personally think he's literary and a musical um, legend. I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah. No, I, th I think I, I really think he he exists in in both camps and. You know, just today, because I knew knew I was doing this later on, the things that have come to me, the songs that have come to me, like Boots of Spanish Leather, all that, mm. that, that, that sort of, I suppose the first one is Girl from the North Country, which mm. is very influenced by English or, or Irish, you know, folk songs. Mm -hmm. 
And that theme has stayed with him. There's many obscure songs that I've got on obscure albums which are just as poignant as that, yeah. which never made it to the main albums. Hmm. It's quite a thing, you know, and, and those Spanish songs, you know, um, haven't seen us since that night, I Can't Cross the Line, you know, mm. you want me for a gambling fight, that one. Yes. I know when I first heard Boots' Spanish leather, leather, which I think possibly was the Nancy Griffith version. Yeah, I, I big girl's blouse. Come on! <laughs> <laughs> oh, I am. Oh, come on! I think that's pretty evident. We're all in touch um, with our feminine side here. But, that's fine. But I thought that it was—I didn't realize it was a Dylan song because it seems so much like this ancient folk song. Yeah. Well, that's what he's able to do. He's actually—he mm. really does do ancient plus modern. You know, yeah. Which is which is brilliant. Yeah. I think we, we have to begin to to wrap it up. Yeah. Uh, mm. It seems like it's been five minutes. Um, do you think uh, if you had if you had a song or, or, or an album, say, to introduce Dylan to a non-believer, what, uh, what would it be? I think it would be freewheeling. I mean, I think that, that's where he really sort of suddenly appeared magically. Mm-hmm. And like, don't think twice, it's all right. It's just a, it's, it's a wonderful song, I mm. think. I think I can't imagine anybody not liking that. No, it is. I mean, I was I did a, a sequence on film. I was in the Liam Neeson film. We were in an occupied prison, and there were three in a cell, and it was the most horrible experience. We had to run. I had to try and stop him being hung, and there was these discs on the door, and each disc had a plastic knife holding it open. There was an eyeball in each in each in the middle of each doorway. It was, it was beyond Magritte or anything. And But in one cell, I heard this boy trying to learn the chords of Don't Think Twice, It's All Right, which which I remember. You know, they're not difficult chords, but there's a lot of them. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And I thought of the, the other two in the cell. Oh, what a long prison sentence that would be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, well, on a laugh. Um, All right. Thank you, Ken. Is it Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded in the Ethiopia Suite at VoiceOver Soho Studios. Engineered by John Green and produced by Peter Morris. We're on Twitter at IsItRollingPod. Music is by Sam Hare. To dance beneath the diamond sky with one hand waving free, silhouetted by the sea, circled by the circus sands, with all memory and fate driven deep beneath the waves. Let me forget about today until tomorrow.